ahead and grab your Bibles, please, and open up to the book of John chapter 3. John chapter 3. As Daniel said, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Forgive me if my voice sounds a little off. I've been battling a head cold all week, or as my wife likes to call it, the man flu. And so I covet your prayers for this serious sickness. Um, Thanks. (laughs) So we've been for a few weeks now in a study of John called the glory of the one and only. And so our hope taken from John chapter 20 is that you would behold the glory of Christ. That you would behold the glory of Christ. You would behold his glory from the signs that we read about, from his teaching, from his life, and ultimately from his death and resurrection. All of it reveals the glory of Christ and all of it we are called to behold. So John chapter 3 is where we find ourselves today. And this chapter is famous in and of itself. It's it's one of those passages that has been preached on a ton throughout Christian history. You probably have even taken an unbeliever to this very passage to show them their need for a new birth, their need for a new life in Christ. And so that's where we see our title for this morning's sermon, The Necessity of a New Birth. The Necessity of a New Birth. Before we jump in, allow me to tell you a quick story. George Whitfield was a famous preacher uh, from England during the 1700s. And the history books tell us that he had a booming voice, one that anyone in a crowd could hear. At one point, he preached to close to 100,000 people in Scotland on a hillside without any means of amplification. But not only did they tell us that it was booming, but they say that it was beautiful, A beautiful preaching voice. One person said it sounded like, quote, an organ, a flute, and a harp all at the same time. I know many of you would say the same for me. (laughs) I'm sorry, Pastor Daniel, all right? But Whitfield, who came to faith after meditating on the new birth in this very chapter in John 3, would often preach, this was his main sermon on John 3, would preach on this very subject, the need for a new birth. And so a friend of his who who traveled with him throughout Europe and even to America, he accompanied him all the time. He asked him one day, why do you so often preach you must be born again? To which Whitfield soberly looked at him and said, because you must be born again. And so with that in mind, let's read John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Nicodemus verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus replied, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the revelation of your Son through it. I pray now that we would simply behold the glory of Jesus Christ, nothing more, nothing less. Would you speak through me? In your son's name we pray. Amen. As I said before, many Christians are familiar with this text. If you're like me and you grew up in church, grew up going to Sunday school, you probably memorized John 3.16 as one of the first passages. And so I understand the familiarity. I get it. But the difficulty with familiarity is assuming the passage no longer has anything to say to me no longer has anything to say to us. It no longer confronts us as the word of God, when in actuality, that is exactly how it confronts us. So we must guard ourselves and look with fresh eyes on this text. From those of you who are here and you have questions about Christianity, questions about God, or you're even wondering who Jesus is, welcome. We are glad that you are here. God, through his word, has something to say to you this morning. And to those of you who are on the opposite end of the spectrum, you can confidently tell me that I am born again and to everyone in between, welcome. God, through his word, has something to say to you this morning. It confronts us with truths that we have to hear and respond to. So let's jump in. Three truths and a warning we see in the text. Three truths and a warning. The need for a new birth is the first truth. First truth we see is our need for a new birth. Verse 1 of chapter 3 opens up with a man named Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And John identifies him as a leading Pharisee, most likely a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council for the city. And he's curious about Jesus. Curious, maybe even a little skeptical, but curious enough to come to him and to converse with him. Now he had most likely heard of the signs that Jesus was doing most likely heard of this man who healed the sick, who turned water into wine, who taught with authority. And so he goes to him and he greets him at night. Now with John, it's important to remember that light and darkness are themes that run throughout the entire book. The light, he tells us in chapter 1, has come into the world and it shines in the darkness. And this theme he picks up at the end of this very passage. But here we have a man coming at night to see Jesus. And there are different reasons as to why scholars think that he came at night. But John seems to betray this out of some timidity and possible fear. Because later on in the book, at the end of it, in chapter 19, he refers to Nicodemus as Nicodemus, the one who went to Jesus at night. So we can wonder. Nicodemus had a high standing. He had recognition as he walked in the streets People knew who he was. He was a part of the Jewish leadership. And to come to Jesus as an honest skeptic during the day is probably too much for Nick here. I call him Nick because Pastor Patrick kept telling me to call this Nick at night, but I couldn't do it. So 
So he comes to Jesus at night, and he could lose some status, could lose some of this reputation. What would the other Pharisees think of him? But what I want us to see is that him coming to Jesus at night is a larger picture of his spiritual state. Nicodemus is still in the darkness, and Jesus is going to confront that. So Nicodemus greets him, Rabbi, we know you are from God because only God could be behind these signs that you do. He comes respectfully, gives him a friendly greeting. He tells him that he must be from God because of all these miracles people are hearing about, and maybe he even saw them himself. One would think that Jesus responded, good, I'm glad you recognize where I'm from. Now if only everybody else could. But Jesus doesn't. He responds, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus acknowledges that Jesus is from above, but Jesus tells Nicodemus he has a problem. Seeing signs and miracles and healings and being amazed by them saves no one. Let me say that again. Seeing signs and miracles and healings and even being amazed by them saves no one. Anyone in their fallen, sinful nature would be amazed. They could maybe even, along with Nicodemus, say, that's from God. Even the demons can acknowledge the work of God. But Jesus says all of that is missing the mark. Jesus is telling him, don't be amazed at the supernatural in me. You need to experience it in yourself. You need to be born again. And so maybe he's been focused on the wrong things. This is typical of the Pharisees. He's a Pharisee. He's an observer of the law. In light of him coming and seeking answers from Jesus, he was probably an honest one, maybe even a good one, one who tried in some measure to do some good things. But all the focus on the externals, all the focus on the signs in and of themselves, he has missed the point. He's been trying to earn salvation when it cannot be earned. He's been trying to please God himself when in and of ourselves we can't do that. He's been living in darkness and is failing to see the light of the world right in front of him. And so Jesus tells him that he must be born again. Many of you are like me and you've moved to Idaho from another state. And I know that all the local Idahoans love us for that. But imagine that you came here a little bit early for an interview. You're trying to move here, trying to move your family here, and you come here early for an interview. Let's say, I don't know, maybe INL. I hear they hire every now and then. But the interview, from your viewpoint, has gone well. You think that you did pretty well in it. But at the end of it, they sit you down, and they tell you that they are not offering you the job. And so you're a little saddened, but you're respectful and inquisitive. And so you ask, sir, ma'am, may, may I ask what I can work on? What area of my resume is weak? Is there a further knowledge I can gain? Is there a different training I should pursue? Anything would be helpful. And they look at you and they say, well, none of it is that. You just need to be born again. <laughs> you would be a little taken aback, but I think you would pick up on the idea. It's not your list of qualifications they reject. It's not your experiences they're rejecting. It's fundamentally you. You must be born again. And it's the exact same idea here with Nicodemus. He has the resume. He has the qualifications, the training, the experience. And Jesus looks past all of it and says that you must be born again. You must be born anew. And this being born language picks up on a fundamental problem that we have. Simply being born once, simply being human, it's not enough. We are born into sin we have inherited the guilt and the corruption from Adam. And not only are we born into sin, but all of us have sinned. And therefore must be remade in a radically new fashion. 
Paul expounds on this very idea through a lot of the book of Romans. Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. A few verses later, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Two chapters later, for just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he sees the heart of the man, sees the fundamental problem with him, and he tells him that he has to be born again. So when we read this text, we have to, along with Nicodemus, ask, how? How can this happen? This brings us to truth number two, the means of the new birth. We have our need for a new birth and now the means of the new birth. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The new birth is God's work by his Spirit. He alone regenerates. The new birth is God's work by his Spirit. He alone regenerates. Nicodemus has a genuine question of how this can happen. And Jesus tells him that it is an act of God and God alone. An act of his spirit in regenerating the person to a new life. And so real quick, I want to say a word about water and spirit and their relationship. There's some who interpret this water as meaning that you have to be baptized to be saved. That is the baptism waters that actually saves you. But I don't think that's what John is getting at here. Water in John is closely associated with the spirit. We're going to come to see this later on in John 7. So likewise, Jesus is also carrying on the idea from Ezekiel the prophet when he says in chapter 36, it should be on the screen, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Look at water and spirit there. He says, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. In other words, Water and spirit are two aspects of our newness. There's a cleansing of the old and a creation of the new. And Jesus is implying this. These two things, water and spirit, they go together to bring about new life. In the very next chapter of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 37, God declares that he is going to do this. How is he going to pour out the water and spirit? What is he going to do to this dead people? He's going to do this by regenerating them. And you guys might know it. He tells Ezekiel to go and prophesy to this valley of dry bones, this valley filled with death and graves and bones, and prophesy to it the word of God and watch. Watch that the word of God brings life. And the picture from this is clear. God is the one who brings life to that which is dead. His spirit revives our hearts of stone so that we are reborn as sons and daughters of God. So it's not a new leaf we have to turn over, but a new life we must receive. It's not simply turning a, over a new leaf in your life. It's a whole new life that you have to receive. It's not trying to behave better or be more responsible or be more active in church or trying to be a better parent, trying to be a better friend. You're trying harder will only exhaust you to the point of futility. We cannot save ourselves. And many people today in churches around the world in some measure can relate to Nicodemus. They are trying to please God. They are trying to do some good works, trying to make it so that the good things they do outweigh the bad. And the faith surveys show us that the truth of this, that a high percentage of those in the American church believe this. If I'm a good person, I go to heaven. If I'm a bad person, I go to hell. And there is some truth in that. Good people do go to heaven. The problem is, is that none of us are good. Only Jesus Christ was truly good. 
None of us are innocent. All stand condemned before God. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus that God's Spirit has to do a work in his life. And Nicodemus, for all his religious training, for all his experience and standing, he still can't grasp it. How can this be? He asks. This brings us to truth number three. The gift of the new birth. We have a need for the new birth. We understand the means. But again, there's something else there. How can this be? And that is the gift that God provides. How can these things be? Asked Nicodemus, verse 9. Jesus replied, Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so Jesus here is direct with Nicodemus. He should have known this. He should have understood the prophets when they said that God himself would have to deal with sin. He should have understood that his good works, apart from God's Spirit, never meant anything before God. Nicodemus, how can you be one of the teachers of Israel and not get this? He's correcting him, but also instructing. As Nicodemus wonders how a person can be washed and given new life. So he's direct. Jesus has authority to speak on these things because he alone has come from heaven. He is an eyewitness to what he talks about. As he's teaching Nicodemus, he also answers his question. This washing and this rebirth by the Spirit is only possible through the Son of Man coming to earth and being lifted up, being lifted up on a cross. Jesus coming as a man, living the life that we couldn't, dying in our place, and being raised as the first of a new creation. That is the gift of God in the new birth. That is God's gift to you. Verse 16, for God loved the world in this way. How did God love the world? We always talk about the love of God and God loving everybody. How did he love the world? He gave his one and only son for you. He gave him to be our sacrifice, to be our propitiation, that he might be our righteousness, that he might be what gives us eternal life. That's the love of a heavenly father. And so I hope we hear and see this clearly. We cannot save ourselves. God must save us, and God has provided the means to save us. I remember hearing of a pastor preaching on this very subject some years back. The call for a Christian to be born again, the new birth itself. And so a young man comes up to him afterwards and says, Pastor, I really enjoyed your sermon, but do you really feel that our condition is that bad? I usually like to think of us as drowning and with a hand reaching up and then God reaches down and we grab hands together and then we kind of work together in this and this whole salvation thing. So the pastor listened to him patiently. He said, friend, our problem is not that we are drowning, but that we have already drowned. And this is exactly what God in his word tells us. God brings new life to a spiritually dead person. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God raised us to new life through faith in his son. So please hear me clearly this morning. Being right with God depends not on you, but on what God has done for you. Being right with God depends not on you, but on what God has done for you. 
And that's exactly how Jesus illustrates this point. I love this illustration that he uses in verses 14 and 15. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus here, if you don't remember this story, he refers to an incident in Israel's desert history as they're wandering through the desert from Numbers 21. And the Israelites, like they always do, they were complaining and they were grumbling. And so in their impatience and their grumbling, God sends serpents among them to afflict them, to bite them. It was miserable. And so they cry out to God for deliverance. They cry out for repentance. And what God tells Moses to do is to cast a bronze serpent and to set it high on a pole. And what the Israelites simply had to do was look at it. They just had to look at it and be healed. The only way out of their plight And to survive their dilemma was by accepting God's solution. And what Jesus tells Nicodemus here is the exact same thing. Now all people must accept God's solution for sin. And then what is that solution? That is to look to the son who will be lifted up as that bronze serpent was lifted up. It is only by him that we have eternal life. By foreshadowing and anticipating his death on the cross, Jesus declares himself as the gateway to heaven. So we are called to believe. Every single person in here is called to believe, to believe that his life and his death and his resurrection were enough for you. Not anything we do, not our striving, our good works, our good intentions, but the finished work of Christ. We must look to him, the one who was lifted up. This brings us to number four, a warning about the new birth. A warning about the new birth. Verses 17 through 21 are a little hard if we're being honest with ourselves. A little hard because we see the condemnation that we are already under. John includes this in the gospel because it gives us insight into our human condition, into what Jesus is trying to convey to Nicodemus, the focal point of God acting in his son. So tying in with point number one in our need for a new birth, we have a need because we were dead, as I said, in our sins. So John tells us in verse 18 that we are condemned. We are already condemned. That apart from the saving work of Christ, we stand condemned already under the just judgment of God. But with Jesus Christ coming, we can now be rescued. We can now be rescued, can now be made right with God. And what Jesus is calling Nicodemus to, and what he's calling all of us hearing this now, is to trust in the specific and objective act of rescue by God to trust in the specific and objective act of rescue by God. So when you hear about faith, I want to describe it for a second. When I call you to faith, when I call you to believe, when I call you to trust, this is what I mean. We're called not to some subjective inner feeling, but a real trust in the real work of a real person which has real consequences. That is the faith that we are called to. A real trust in the real work of a real person It has real consequences. And if you're anything like me, when you read John chapter three or you read a gospel, you can't help but wondering how could anyone not believe in Jesus? It would seem preposterous not to believe. When you understand, when you hear me communicating to you that God sent his son to die for you, how could you not believe? John tells us. He forces us to come face to face with the fact that we, all of us in our sin, do this very thing. Look at how he does it. He contrasts verses 16 and 19. In verse 16, we have the full display of a God who loves a rebellious world in need of salvation. A God who loves and pursues a sinful people, a sinful humanity. But then in verse 19, 
He tells us what sinful humanity loves. He tells us what we in our sin loves. It loves the darkness. It loves its sin. It loves fleeing from God because we don't want to submit our lives to him. We don't want him telling us how to live. We don't want to submit to anything that he says. And so the call for me and the call for you is to do just that, to submit our lives to God, to submit to his plan of salvation and redemption, to stop striving in and of ourselves, but to look to Jesus, look to the one who was lifted up for you. Be as the Israelites did, look and be healed. You cannot add anything else to it. To know, as John says, that by believing in him, we are no longer condemned. We have been given eternal life. And this eternal life, I want to remind you, when you think of eternal life, don't just think of it in terms of quantity. Don't just think, oh, I get to live forever. That'll be nice. Don't just think of it in terms of duration. Think of it of the quality. A life free from sin and suffering and death. A life where we rule and reign with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. That is eternal life. And that is what Jesus promises to those who believe in him. So I pray that you would believe. He was calling Nicodemus to something new, both a new birth and a new, not, new life found only in him. And he's calling all of us to the exact same thing. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise you as the God of heaven and earth, the one who sent his one and only son to die for us. You showed your love in that manner. You showed a sacrificial love that you sent your son to die for us that we might be reunited with you. So we praise you for that. We recognize that. But Lord, in our, in our sinful flesh, every single part of us wants to add something to it, wants to contribute something to it. But I pray now that those who don't know you and are here, that your spirit would work upon them and they would hear the call to simply look to the cross and believe. And for those of us who are born again, may we be challenged and reminded of what our sin is always tempting us to do, to try to add something, to try to rest in our good works. May we rest in the finished work of Christ and in him alone. Would you be glorified? In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.